progress is not based on consumption. Progress is based on fundamental developments of metrics that aren't always tied to consumption. Welcome to In Our Hands, a podcast about the challenges and opportunities presented by the climate crisis. Each episode features a new thinker at the front lines of the battle to save our planet. Join us as we delve into the complexities of this global challenge and seek actionable ways to build a sustainable future. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of In Our Hands, where we interview leading climate thinkers. Today, we have something new and exciting, the first climate journalist on our podcast series. Akshat Rathi is a London-based senior reporter for Bloomberg News. His first book, Climate Capitalism, tells the stories of people building solutions at scale to tackle climate change and will be published later this month. Previously, Akshat was a senior reporter at Quartz and a science editor at The Conversation. His writings have been published in The Economist, Nature, The Hindu, The Guardian, Ars Technica, and Chemistry World. He is also the host of an awesome weekly climate podcast, which we urge you to go listen to, which is called Zero for Bloomberg Green. And he writes an equally awesome weekly newsletter on climate solutions. He lives with his wife in London, the United Kingdom. Uh, Akshat, thank you for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. So I love your background. Well, I love your background for many reasons. But one reason I love your background is you are a journalist who has a PhD in organic chemistry. Can you yes. can you talk us through, and you know, for a lot of people when they hear organic chemistry, you know, their heart sinks and they begin to quake. But so if you've done a PhD, <laughs> you're a different order of human being than most people. Can you talk us through that transition and where your interest in climate came from? Yeah, I'm sure somebody's thinking, damn, what a wasted place in Oxford studying chemistry that's now being used only for journalism. It wasn't a straight path, as you might tell. You know, growing up in India, it's sort of like if you have uh, any interest in math and science, you're studying engineering. And if you have any interest in engineering, you're going and doing an MBA and getting a degree that will earn you money, right? Right. But somehow I bent the MBA rule and I was at an institute where I felt like I wanted to go and study more and was fortunate to get a place in Oxford University, at which point my parents really could not protest (laughs) that you shouldn't study more. And so uh, Oxford allowed me to bend the rules a little and, and go and do a PhD. And then when I turned around and I said, actually, turns out this whole professor thing is not that much fun. Uh, I'm going to try and do something more fun, which seems to me is journalism because I like writing and why not? By that time, I had a PhD in organic chemistry from Oxford University and my parents were like, I guess you can do what you want now. <laughs> We are happy you've succeeded in life. I hope you get enough money to support yourself. And if that is the case, be a journalist. And here here you are. Thank you for that. So we're going to dig in. The meat of this podcast is going to be about your newest book, Climate Capitalism, which will be released this month. Bill Gates has praised the book as an important read for anyone in need of optimism about our ability to build a clean energy future. But this question, you know, I'd said earlier, this is your first book, but you have a first edited book before this, United We Are Unstoppable, published in 2020. And this question of finding stories that inspire optimism and hope was also the focus of that book. Your views on the importance of optimism and hope 
in conversations about climate? I come less from the point of view that I need to give you some hope or optimism. I come more from the point of view that I need to correct public perception of I come from the point of view that we should correct public perception, which is usually there's a gap between reality and what people understand. And if that gap is too large, uh, then we are moving in the wrong direction. And my hope with the book was to showcase that by what sounds like a dire situation to be in, where heat records are being broken every day, where climate impacts are happening every week at with more ferocity in many different parts of the world. And what looks like a dire situation come, there is actually a whole set of people and machines and policy and technologies that are moving in the direction of trying to tackle this problem. It's not a false hope, a corrective that we are not doing enough to deal with the problem, that we are off track so much that we can never solve this problem. And, you know, that's 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 just a very, I, w- I would describe it as, and it's very similar to our view here at Amasia, which is let's neither jump up and down or wring our hands. Let's just get some things done here. You know, let's be pragmatic and let's move forward. Once again, the book's name is Climate Capitalism, Winning the Global Race to Zero Emissions. And you tackle a difficult and polarized subject with many people questioning whether net zero, which is in itself a very fraught term now, whether it can be achieved and at what cost. For this audience, can you give a brief overview of the thesis and your views of the connections between capitalism and climate? I start from the point where at least in a big chunk of the environmental movement, there is a strong feeling continues to be, and perhaps growing in some sectors, that without appending the economic system that exists, there is no way out. That there is just a fundamentally broken system uh, with incentive structures that are never going to align with what the planet needs, what people need, and will be essentially run for concentrating capital in the hands of capital owners. But what I find is that that's not the case. If that were true, and I've been a climate journalist for nearly seven years now, then I would have come to that conclusion myself. That would have been the case. I would have gone to places and found the capitalistic system is just broken and no solutions are working. And that would have been the book I would have written. But what I found instead was that, in fact, yes, despite the problems of the system, which there are many and they need to be corrected, there are people in places where that system is being tweaked at the margins, sometimes pretty fundamentally, to enable scale-up of many of the technologies that we need. Solar is now cheaper than all fossil fuels almost everywhere in the world, and that happened under a capitalistic framework. It's true of batteries, it's true of electric cars, it's true of wind. And soon it'll be true of hydrogen, it'll be true of lab-grown meat. These are all technology trends that are going in the right direction. They're happening partly because of capitalism. But what I did find is that none of these technologies actually just develop and become cheaper because capital is being thrown Mm -hmm. at them. They are happening because governments are enabling the deployment of those technologies through policies. And that is where climate capitalism comes in, where now that governments are finally in that place where they understand the problem and the scale of the challenge and realize the opportunity it presents to be a part of a future where they can lead, 
they are starting to put in place policies to enable technologies to come. Now, you can quibble. It's not enough. They are not spending the money in the right way. This is taxpayers' money, and there are better ways in which you could spend it. And those are all things that are true, and we should debate them. But I think what we should not debate anymore is that capitalism cannot fundamentally be a solution for the climate crisis. Well, you know, as you can imagine, there are going to be sections of the academy where there'll be violent disagreement with that entire set of statements. But here for our audience, I want to say I reached out to Akshat before I knew this book was coming out. And then he, sh- he was kind enough to share a proof of the book. You know, we are card-carrying climate capitalists at AmAsia. I mean, that is, that, is in the, that is pretty much the one-line definition of what we do as a VC firm. So as you can imagine, Akshat, I agree with you. <laughs> you state early on in the book that it's cheaper to save the world than destroy it, which I just love. And I'm going to shamelessly use that line in a lot of places. What led you to that conviction? You know, the, the journey concluding that capitalism and fighting the climate crisis can actually work together, did that entirely manifest itself during your research process for the book? Or had you been vaguely headed in that direction anyway, from a thinking standpoint? I started the book from the perspective of writing about the immense growth there was in energy technologies, in emission cutting technologies, because that's the place I come from. I'm a science-trained journalist. Uh, I understand technologies, and I am fascinated by the history of how we solve problems using technology. But as soon as I started to unravel the story of how these technologies really scaled up, there was no walking away from the fundamental role that governments play in it, both in the creation, in the innovation pipeline of these technologies, right from the basic science of, say, how a lithium-ion battery works, to the very deployment once these are commercialized. I started building a framework of seeing how successful examples of climate solutions required a combination of people, policy, and technology in the right mix, in very different contexts, in very different political, but also very different economic contexts. And once you get that mix, you can start to see real fundamental change. So I have a chapter on solar in India, on electric cars in China, on wind in Denmark, but I also have chapters on law in the UK because the Climate Change Act enabled the UK to become this economy that is now among the G7, reducing the most emissions. And I have a chapter on finance. I take what Breakthrough Energy Ventures has done and give the story of how Bill Gates built what has now become a sort of blueprint for many other venture capital firms to take on, where you apply scientific expertise to really understand whether a technology can deliver. You apply more patient capital so that you allow these technologies more time to be uh, demonstrated and scaled up. Uh, And so those combinations of systematic changes that have happened are very fundamental, enabling these technologies to do the thing that they can do uh, in reducing emissions. Super helpful. I mean, my main reaction to everything you just said is I think every one of our portfolio company CEOs needs to be on your podcast. Let's talk, you touched on electric vehicles in China. Can you do a little science fiction for us? You know, if you had to speculate, what do you think the future of energy storage will look like? Are there storage technologies you are, you look, 
you cover a lot of things in climate, but you are a scientist. And so which storage technologies, if any, are you most excited about? Oh, storage technologies, so many of them. Um, I started looking at sodium iron as early as 2017. There were, there were a few startups, some in California, that had shown that sodium iron could work and were actually starting to scale them up. But they were just at a very early stage. Maybe the application would be in a data center or something. Right. And now sodium iron is in cars and could be a decent chunk of some of the cars in China. Right. And I'm kind of surprised that that came about. I sort of dropped the ball on sodium ion and then suddenly it's in a car. So, you know, it's amazing how even as a battery nerd that I am, I kind of not really catch that trend happening. So that was interesting to me. I've always been fascinated by the idea of flow batteries. I feel like they are cool. They are interesting, and yet they never seem to work at scale. And I wonder if there is a flow battery that could be made to work that uh, works. You know, iron is probably the closest that you could use as a flow battery metal, and that would be cheap enough, that would be widely available enough. And there is a company called ESS that is doing that in, in the U.S. But, you know, the sort of work that Form Energy is doing with energy storage on building iron air batteries that's very interesting. So maybe we don't need flow batteries. Maybe what is happening with Form Energy is a pretty good place to be right now for what we need in energy storage. And then there are sort of wacky ideas, which uh, I don't know how to believe it, but as a sort of science nerd, I'd be like, that is something that somebody should try. So I wrote about a company named Electra, which uh, essentially uses renewable electricity to convert iron oxide, which is iron ore, into iron without using any carbon. So basically does what a massive furnace would do using coal, but doing it with electricity. And it does it at 60 degrees Celsius. I went and I saw the process and that thing's real. You can do it. They're trying to fundamentally scale that up. But one of the things that Sandeep Nijawan, who's the CEO, told me at the time was that if this thing scales and it becomes cheap enough, you could think of storing energy in the form of iron. Wow. Where you could use renewable electricity to make iron, ship that iron, because iron is so easy to move around, and then convert that iron to iron oxide and then reverse it. And why not? And I'm, you know, at the time it's science fiction. I'm like, yeah, great. Why don't you first build a build what you're setting out to be, and then we'll think about energy storage. But that's the joy of being able to work on technologies. You can stretch them out if you have the desire and capital and the motivation. And and the scientific knowledge and know-how. Absolutely. So we're going to move away from science a little bit and talk about that most obvious manifestation of the capitalism we have, which is the joint stock corporation which once you start thinking about the joint stock corporation, you realize their fields of control and power extend through every aspect of human society. And you mentioned in the book, Milton Friedman, whose doctrine was the social responsibility of a company is to maximize profit for shareholders. And I feel like we've spent the last 50 years moving away from that statement, which is a good thing. Can you talk a bit about how you think the social responsibility of corporations is changing and the role of climate in that shift? So in trying to understand capitalism's role in the climate crisis, I did go back, as you said, to the Milton Friedman essay 
And it is good to read fundamental text, as many scholars will tell you. When you read it, you realize, you know, that one line about the role of a corporation as a maximizing profit algorithm is within the context and within the bounds of what society should allow these corporations to do. And Friedman says that very much so in the very essay that you quoted that line from. Um, And so even then, the social role of a corporation was within what society wants the corporation to do, not purely the benefit of what capitalism would allow the corporation to do. And so we have kind of come full circle in trying to relearn the lessons that Milton Friedman had in that very essay. Um, And we've come to that partly because we've been forced by climate change and the externalities that are causing risk to become a real problem for the bottom line of corporations. Uh, And so now corporations are are turning around and are starting to take those risks into consideration, both on their own, but also because the shareholders are asking them to. And many of these shareholders are shareholders that have sort of your and my pension. They have our long-term capital uh, that they need to put to work in the most uh, sensible way so that we, decades later, are able to access that capital. And so they are long-term patient capital owners who would like corporations to be not destroying the planet, but be profiting from providing a service that society wants. And look, and you know, we see it in our own lives. You know, as I said, we're cl- card-carrying climate capitalists here, and we see it in how the customers for our companies are beginning to behave. We're seeing a dramatic change. I'm going to move into sort of a sequence of questions to wrap us up, and one that has been on my mind is around the idea of behavior change, which, as you know, is central to the Amasia climate investment thesis frame it this way. You know, there's an argument that when we talk about some of the more dramatic solutions to the climate crisis, such as carbon capture and so on, that these kinds of innovations will encourage just business as usual. You know, look, if I can have it all sequestered at the push of a button, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. And especially people in wealthy nations, that they won't change their carbon-intensive lifestyles. What are your thoughts on the necessity of behavior change? And certainly there could be technologies that mediate that change, but what are your thoughts on that to in tackling the climate crisis? I think we try and separate them out perhaps a bit too much. If anything, behavior change is already starting to happen in so many places. One place where I found this quite interesting, I mean, we come from India, we have a prime minister in place right now who, um, you know, is going to be more ambitious on solar and on clean energy, isn't quite meeting the goals that he set out. You know, India was supposed to have hit its uh, goal of being able to build 100 gigawatts of solar by last year. But it came much further than what its previous goal was, which was 20 gigawatts. Uh, And so, you know, there is that story of doing more than what you thought you could have done, but not doing enough for what you need to do. And yet it is also the country which has, you know, emissions of two tons per capita, one eighth of the US, one fourth of China, one tenth of Saudi Arabia. Yet 
the Prime Minister also has a, yet the Prime Minister also promoting what he calls a lifestyle-oriented approach towards environmentalism, where he is saying, yes, we are people who consume less and we know how to live a good life within that consumption pattern. How about we continue to do that rather than going down the sort of Western consumption path, which we know brings a lot of problems to the planet. So if you can see a country like India, which is such a small part of the problem, so to speak, uh, at least on a per capita basis, talking about uh, lifestyle changes, it is kind of incumbent upon the people here in the West, where we live now here in the UK or where you live in the US, to reflect on just how much we do consume and do we really need to consume all that much. Uh, Progress is not based on consumption. Progress is based on fundamental developments of metrics that aren't always tied to consumption. GDP is just one metric. Real progress is life expectancy improvements, air quality improvements, human well-being. And those don't have to be tied to consumption. Well, there's an entire other podcast episode to be done one day in which I, you and I chat about GDP me- measurements and the, the pernicious effect of that metric on so much of modern civilization. We'll, we'll, we'll do that next time. I want to wrap us up with a question about the media landscape. And you're obviously a participant in it. It just feels like there's a bit of an anecdotal bifurcation between techno-optimists and climate doomers, to call them that. And you know what I've learned in this conversation with you is there's actually a third way, which is climate getting things done people. I think you and me um, and you and media. Is does this sound like a fair description of the current media landscape? And if so, why why so? It's an interesting one. I don't see it that way, but I am uh, hearing you think. Um, but the fact that you ask that question must be because you see it that yeah. way. And so I would be curious before I answer it. Why do you think that's the case? Well, this is subject for yet another podcast episode on social media and what gets you clicks. Right. And this ultimately does lead back to capitalism. But, you know, as I constantly tell people, you're never going to click on the story headline that says things are getting better. You're going to click the story headline that says a cyclone has shown up in Manhattan in March. Right. That's going to get your click. And that's a bad example because that would truly be something worth clicking on. But would you see my point? You know, you click on very bad news. Yes. It is unusual to click on good news. Yes and no. I started as a science journalist, right? And what I found was science stories were among the most well-read stories uh, in general news publications. And you would think that makes no sense if people want to just read about horrors and horrible things and about fear-mongering and about politics and gossip. But that's not true. Science stories are among the most popular in on the internet, I love that. they evoke a sense of awe and wonder wow. that people do fundamentally uh, appreciate. And so um, I think our understanding of human nature sometimes is skewed. And that's that's no surprise. We all get our slice of the world that we live right. in. But no, I, I find it not that 
hard actually to be able to write about solutions and for people to care about them and write about successes. That's what this book is about, a whole series of successes within the limitations and the challenges that each of them have faced to come to this point. And I've also found just in my 10 years as a journalist, seven years as a climate journalist, that there are other climate journalists who are generally aligned in doing the right thing. The science is right, making sure that the uh, messages that are provided to public are reasoned, are informed. I found more collaboration between what you would think in a capitalistic, competitive media environment would be sort of cutthroat. Uh, stabbing, stabbing in the back to get the story not existing. It's much more collaborative. I have only found people who are willing to do the right thing in service of telling the story. That might be a slice of climate journalists or science journalists, and maybe not true in political journalists, uh, not from that world. Uh, but certainly I found that even though there are publications that take a particular focus to write about stories and others that take technology as the focus. Uh, in general, everybody's trying to do the right thing by what informed good journalism should do. We don't always end our podcasts perfectly, but that was an amazingly perfect ending because it is an ending that speaks to the <laughs> it speaks to the good side of human nature, right? Which sometimes we can lose sight of. Akshat, I want to thank you so much. This is not the last time we're going to ask you to speak with us, so I'm sorry for you that we're going to do this again. Do it about other things related to climate. <laughs> this was fun. No, great question. And I want to thank you for your time and come visit us, and I will see you in London. Thank you for listening. Please email us at climate at amasia.vc with any suggestions or ideas and visit inourhands.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information.